Well, hello. Welcome back to the Through the Psalms podcast. Before we begin, I want to remind you to tell a friend or family member about the podcast if you enjoy listening to it. Also, you can share the podcast through email or social media. And please leave a review on the app that you listen to this podcast in. That will help the podcast. All right, well, today we're going to be talking about Psalm 26. This is a Psalm of David, according to the superscription. And it is another uh, lament psalm, which uh, means that it contains a plea of deliverance, a uh, prayer for help to God uh, for a certain situation that the psalmist finds himself in. Now, I just want to note that today you hear a lot about lament, uh, lament services or lament prayers. And that's a little different than when I mentioned lament psalm. A lament psalm, again, is just when the psalmist finds himself in a situation that he needs help and he's crying out to God, he makes a plea to God for deliverance. That's what I mean by lament psalm. So it's not the same as um, the kind of lament you hear about today, Um, like a a mourning or a, a confession of sin. That's not the kind of lament we're talking about here. Okay, in this psalm, uh, David, it seems like he's been falsely accused by someone. And we don't know exactly you know, when this took place. It doesn't say, but uh, we can guess that it might be when Saul um, was persecuting him and threatening him. Uh, some say it could be when he you know, fled Jerusalem and Absalom was trying to take over his throne. I tend to think it was more uh, uh, the time when Saul was chasing him and threatening him. And the reason why I think that is because David in this psalm protests uh, by appealing to his innocence. And he's probably less likely to do that uh, later in his life uh, when Absalom stole his throne because, you know, David wasn't completely innocent during that time. He had committed adultery and murder and God had forgiven him. But the tone of this psalm makes me think it's more uh, uh, the time, you know, early in his life when Saul was persecuting him. And David is claiming that he is innocent and and protesting this uh, false accusation and this unfair treatment. But again, we don't know for sure. That's just, that's just a guess. All right, as far as the outline of the psalm, uh, Verses 1 through 5 contain a plea for vindication and examination by the Lord. Uh, Verses 6 through 8 are basically David focusing on the Lord and praising the Lord, so it contains a praise to the Lord. Uh, Verses 9 through 11, we have a petition for deliverance and redemption. And then in verse 12, it wraps up with a proclamation of faith and confidence in the Lord. And praise to the Lord. All right. Well, with that as an introduction, let's go ahead and read Psalm 26. It's only 12 verses. So Psalm 26. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord. Therefore, I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go in with dissemblers. I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord. 
that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men, in whose hands is mischief, and their right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in mine integrity, redeem me, and be merciful unto me. My foot standeth in an even place, in the congregation will I bless the Lord. I'm sorry, in the congregations will I bless the Lord. Okay, in verse 1, you have David asking God to judge him or vindicate him. Uh, most translations will probably say, vindicate me, O Lord. So he's asking for vindication. Uh, so it's clear that he's been either done wrong or falsely accused. And he's asking the Lord to investigate the matter and look at him, examine him, and vindicate him. He says that he's walked in his integrity, so he's claiming that he is innocent, that he is a man of integrity, and he, he is trusted in the Lord. And he concludes verse 1 by saying, I shall not slide or I shall not slip. Um, the NIV in verse 1 says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. So clearly here, David is saying that he is innocent and he's asking the Lord to judge his case and to vindicate him of, of the, in this situation. Um, Charles Spurgeon says, he, had, he says about this prayer that David prays, you know, praying for vindication and praying that God would examine him. He says he had better have a clear case who dares to carry his suit into the king's bench of heaven. Such an appeal as this is not to be rashly made on any occasion, and as to the whole of our walk and conversation, it should never be made at all, unless we are justified in Christ Jesus. A far more fitting prayer for a sinful, mortar, a sinful mortal is the petition, enter not into judgment with thy servant. See Psalm 143.2. Now he's saying here, um, this is a scary prayer, basically. You know, uh, when you pray this prayer, you better be innocent and be sure that you're on the right side. Is basically what Spurgeon is saying. He's saying it's better to pray, you know, please don't enter into judgment with thy servant, than to pray, vindicate me and examine me, you know, because of my innocence. Um, you know, we're all sinners and, and we, we've all fallen short. But I think in this particular case, David was done wrong or falsely accused. And he's just saying that his enemies are wrong about him and that, that he really is innocent uh, in this particular situation. Uh, Spurgeon goes on to say, David had not used any traitorous or unrighteous means to gain the crown or to keep it. He was conscious of having been guided by the noblest principles of honor in all his actions with regard to Saul and his family. What a comfort it is to have the approbation of one's own conscience. If there is peace within the soul, the blustering storms of slander which howl around us are of little consideration. When the little bird in my bosom sings a merry song, it is no matter to me if a thousand owls hoot at me from without. He goes on to say, David knew that God's covenant had given him the crown, and therefore he took no indirect or unlawful means to secure it. 
He would not slay his enemy in the cave, speaking about Saul, nor suffer his men at arms to smite him when he slept unguarded on the plain. So Charles Spurgeon tends to, uh, it sounds like that he believes this was talking about when Saul was pursuing David also. Um, you know, David could have taken things into his own hands. He could have killed Saul uh, in the cave, but he didn't do that. And Spurgeon goes on to say, faith trusts God to accomplish his own decrees. So when you have faith in God, you don't take things into your own hands. You, you wait upon God to act. You know, David had been anointed king. He knew that God wanted him to be king, but he was going to let God perform that in his timing and not try to make things happen or manipulate the situation. Um, Spurgeon goes on to say, confidence in God is a most effectual security against sin. The ways of honesty, though often rough, are always safe. We cannot trust in God if we walk crookedly, but straight paths and simple faith bring the pilgrim happily to his journey's end. So, you know, we have plenty of instances in the Bible where people didn't trust God. Maybe they became impatient and they took things into their own hands. I think about, you know, Abraham was a man of faith and he did trust God. And especially when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son uh, Isaac, Abraham obeyed and showed his faith in God. But he didn't always do that. There were times when Abraham, you know, he was human just like anybody else and he messed up. And you think about the time when Abraham and Sarah took things into their own hands and Sarah gave uh, her handmaid or her concubine, the, Abraham's concubine, you know, to Abraham, uh, Hagar. And they tried to get an heir or a child, you know, by forcing things and not waiting upon God. And that obviously didn't work. And they had to wait several more years until Isaac came along, the child of promise. Um, so we have plenty of examples where people failed to wait upon God or failed to fully trust God. And it always ends up badly when people do that. We all do that. We've all had situations where we were impatient and we've paid the price for not waiting upon God. But David here, you know, when it comes to Saul, David behaved uh, admirably and correctly. He did not take things into his own hands. He didn't seek vengeance against Saul. He just waited upon God to handle it. And so here he's declaring his innocence. He's asking God to vindicate him. All right, in verse 2, uh, he says, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins in my heart. Uh, that word prove can mean um, test. The NIV there says, Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Uh, so when you see the word there, try, in the King James, a lot of times it means test. Um, and then reigns, you can, you can uh, substitute uh, mind there. So he's saying, test my mind and my heart, or examine my mind and my heart. So he's asking or praying to God for God to examine him and to test him. And look into his heart. And this is another one of those scary prayers because uh, God will answer this prayer if you pray for God to examine you, to look into your heart, and to show you anything that's wrong. He will answer that. Now David's praying, you know, 
to protest his innocence. He's saying, Lord, examine me. I'm innocent. You're not going to find anything there. But we can also pray that God would examine us not to protest our innocence, but invite God to show us anything that's wrong or sinful. And he will answer that prayer and he will show us what there's, you know, what is in our heart that we need to repent of. So that is one of those scary prayers that we, we uh, pray and then may, we may be surprised that the Lord answers it. Another scary prayer is when we pray for patience. I had a friend tell me one time that he prayed for patience. And, you know, the Bible says in Romans that tribulation worketh patience. And he said I, when he prayed for patience, he had all this tribulation that happened. All these things around the house broke or went wrong. And so he said that's, you know, a prayer that he kind of hesitates to pray after that. Because uh, when you pray for patience, you get tribulation because that's what brings about uh, patience. Another scary prayer is like Isaiah in chapter, Isaiah chapter 6 when he said, Lord, I, here I am, send me. Um, and, and the Lord sent him. Uh, so these are prayers that we pray sometimes and, and maybe we forget we've prayed about them. And then the Lord answers and we, we're surprised. And so when we pray, Lord, examine me. Um, test me, show me, you know, what's in my heart. We might be surprised when the Lord answers that. Um, you know, you've heard the phrase, the heart of the matter. And that means, you know, getting down to what really matters, the, the core um, part of the situation, uh, what's really at stake. And in our relationship with God, we need to remember that it's our heart that matters. It's not the outs. It's not the outside or the external things. You know, the Pharisees were concerned about the external things, and Jesus rebuked them for this, because he he talked about how they cleansed the outside of the platter, but inside was full of, you know, uh, evil things. And and so I forgot the exact words that he used, but he rebuked them uh, because they were concerned about the outside, but not the inside, not the heart, and. We have to be concerned about the heart of the matter. Um, Psalm 139 and verse 23. Uh, this is a well-known verse. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So David is praying that God would search him and and show him any wicked way that's in him so that he can correct it. And then he asks for God to lead him in the way everlasting. So it's, a, it's probably a good idea for us from time to time to pray a prayer like this where we ask God to search us and show us anything that's sinful or, or wicked in our hearts or our lives and help us to repent of that so that we can walk in the right way, in the way of truth, in the everlasting way. But David here is more praying this again out of, uh, he's protesting his innocence. He's declaring his innocence. And he's saying, you know, Lord, you know my enemies and how they're treating me and the things they're saying about me. And he's praying, Lord, examine me. I'm innocent. Uh, judge me, Lord. Vindicate me. So it's a little bit of a different uh, situation there. All right. Um, Charles Spurgeon says, All this is a very bold appeal and made by a man like David who feared the Lord exceedingly. It manifests a most solemn and complete conviction of innocence. Uh, 
I think another thing this shows is the power of a clean conscience. When we are right with the Lord and we've confessed our sins and we are doing His will in our lives, there's power in that clean conscience. There's power in, in, the, in walking in the right way. Because if someone brings an accusation against us, it just bounces off. There's nothing there uh, to attach to uh, when they throw those stones at you. But if you have done what is wrong and you don't have a clean conscience, then when those accusations come, they can stick because we're not walking in the right way and doing what we should. So that's why it's so important. You know, you've heard preachers say, keep short accounts with the Lord. That's why it's so important to keep short accounts with the Lord, confess our sins, walk daily with Him, and make sure that we're uh, right and that we have that clean conscience. We all fall, we all sin, but we, we confess our sin and let the Lord cleanse us, and then we have that clean conscience and we can go forward with confidence. All right, verse 3. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. I like this verse. Uh, David says that his eyes are on the loving kindness of the Lord. His focus is on God's goodness and his love and his mercy. Um, someone said one time, Look at others and be distressed. Look at self and be depressed. Look at Jesus and you will be blessed. So where should our focus be, especially in trials like David's going through? Our focus should be on the Lord and his goodness and his loving kindness. Uh, that will encourage us. If we focus on Jesus and his love for us, that will be a great encouragement to us. You know, in Psalm twenty-seven, thirteen. It says, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So you see this throughout the Psalms. David wants to focus on the goodness of the Lord. And that's what motivates him and that's what keeps him going. Is remembering that the Lord is good. It doesn't mean that he didn't have trials. It doesn't mean he didn't have enemies. It doesn't mean he didn't have problems. But when he focused on the goodness of the Lord, that motivated him to keep going. All right, um, Charles Spurgeon says here, A sense of mercy received sets a fair prospect before the faithful mind in its gloomiest condition, for it yields visions of mercies yet to come, visions not visionary but real. He goes on to say, The goodness of the Lord to us should be before our eyes as a motive actuating our conduct. We are not under the bondage of the law, but we are under the sweet constraints of grace, which are far more mighty, although far more gentle. Then, you know, in the second part of this verse, David talks about walking in the truth. He says, and I have walked in thy truth. In 3 John, verse 4, it says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So we as Christians are to walk in the truth. What does that mean? That means that we're walking according to the word of God and the will of God. We're doing what God wants us to do. Our lives are clean before Him. We've confessed our sin. We're obeying the Lord and what He wants us to do. Uh, we're walking honestly, uh, and we're not walking in a deceitful way or a wicked way. And so we are to walk in the truth, and that's what David said he had done. He had walked in the truth. Charles Spurgeon said, Some talk of truth, it is better to walk in it. 
So it's easy to talk about the truth. It's easy um, to study about the truth. But what's important is that we walk in the truth, that we actually put it into practice. Uh, that's the temptation when sometimes when we study the Bible is to just learn about the Bible, to know the Bible. The hard part is to actually do the will of God and to put the, put the truth that we learn into practice. That's the real test. And that's not always easy to do. So we can hear a wonderful sermon. We can go to church. Maybe the, the preacher's talking about uh, loving our enemies. And we can hear this sermon and think, wow, what a wonderful sermon that is. Well, when we, go up, when we get up on Monday morning and go out into the world, we have to put that into practice. And that's a lot harder to do than just listening to a sermon. And so when we walk in the truth, we will actually do that and love our enemies. And again, that's easier said than done. All right, verses 4 and 5. He says, I have not sat with vain persons or idolatrous persons, neither will I go in with dissemblers or hypocrites. I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. So again, that word vain can be translated idolatrous. The NIV actually translates it deceitful. Uh, the NIV says, I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. So this is talking about the kind of people that David associates with. And he's saying that he doesn't want to associate with wicked people, uh, with deceitful people, with idolatrous people. He doesn't want to associate with hypocrites, pretenders, people that maybe pretend to serve God, but their hearts are not right and they're just doing it for show. Uh, doing it to impress other people. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, I wanted to read verses 14 through 18. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Paul there says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters saith the Lord Almighty. So this passage is talking about the importance of being separated from the world, uh, not associate, not hanging out with um, wicked people. Now, as Christians, we're to take the gospel to the world, we're to witness to others, we're to show the love of Christ to the world. So it doesn't mean that we're never around sinners, that is, unbelievers, it doesn't mean we're never around unbelievers. Uh, we have to live in the world and we will rub, rub shoulders with people who aren't believers. And if we're witnessing to someone, obviously we have to be around them. And, but what it means is that our friends, the people that we hang out with on a regular basis, should not be wicked people or unbelievers. Um, you know, the Bible talks about how iron sharpens iron. And so those that we hang out with will have an effect on us. 
So we want to make sure that our the people that we hang out with are people that are going to help us grow in the Lord and and not people that will drag us down. So it matters who our friends are. It matters who we associate with. It matters who we hang out with. Um, now, I want to read another Sp- uh, Charles Spurgeon quote on this. Um, he says, We must see and speak and trade with men of the world, but we must on no account take our rest and solace in their empty society. So again, he's just saying, we're going to be around unbelievers in the world, but that doesn't mean that we hang out with them and fellowship with them on a regular basis. Um, So, it's just being aware of what influences us and who influences us and who we associate with. Now, the word hypocrites there, or dissemblers, the King James says, uh, that is somebody that maybe they talk like a believer, maybe they act like a believer, but their motives are not pure. They're, they're doing it for show. They're doing it to impress people. They're faking it. They're going through the motions. Their heart is not in it. Um, you know, in ancient Greece, hypocrites were, were stage actors, they were people that wore uh, wore a mask, and they performed a play. And you know that's fine if you're performing a play and and that's what you're doing. But out in the real world, if you have a mask on and you're acting, that's not good. That's not healthy. Uh, God wants us to be uh, honest and sincere before Him. He doesn't want us to put on a show and to fake it or do things to just impress people. Uh, he wants us to be real and honest uh, before him and before others. And David said he didn't want to be with the hypocrites. He didn't want to be with those that were faking it. He wanted to be around people that genuinely and truly loved the Lord. All right, verses 6 and 7. He says, I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, altar, O Lord, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. So again, David's proclaiming his innocence. He's saying he washes his hands in innocency. He's declaring that he's done nothing wrong. And then when he says, I will compass thine altar, O Lord, or I will walk around, go around thy altar, uh, one of the things I read on this is that priests, when they would sacrifice on the altar, would sometimes walk around it. And um, I'm not sure of the significance of walking around the altar, but connecting his innocency with the altar, I think, is showing that David could come before the Lord and worship the Lord because he had this clean conscience, because he was innocent and he was walking with God. He was walking in the truth. I think that's true with us today too is if if we are living in a wicked or sinful way and we have unconfessed sin in our lives we're not going to want to go to church and worship the Lord or if we do we're not going to feel uh, at peace uh, we're going to feel like we need to confess our sins first so before we go to worship the Lord we do need to have a time of confession where we make sure that our hearts are right with the Lord so we can enter into that worship 
with a clean and a pure heart and and the worship will be uh, much more um, productive or we will be blessed uh, much more if we go into it with the right heart attitude and uh, confessing our sins before the Lord all right um, then he talks about um, declaring God's praise and you know publishing with the voice of thanksgiving telling of all thy wondrous works uh, so he wants to tell people what God has done in his life uh, he wants to share with others the wonderful things that God has done you know you look in the Old Testament at when God performed these miracles for Moses and the Israelites and he would you know tell them that they were to share the wondrous works that God had done for them and and uh, Moses wrote a song when they uh, you know when God gave them a victory and and they crossed through the Red Sea and were delivered of the Egyptians and and they would oftentimes sing these songs of praise to God at what the Lord had done and so the same kind of idea here with David he wants to share with others everything that God has done for him Charles Spurgeon says, to sound, aboard, I'm sorry, to sound abroad the worthy praises of the God of all grace should be the everyday business of a pardoned sinner. Let men slander us as they will. Let us not defraud the Lord of his praises. Let dogs bark, but let us like the moon, but let us like the moon shine on. He goes on to say, and as men find great pleasure in dis- discoursing uh, discoursing upon things remarkable and astonishing, so the saints rejoice to tell of the great things which the Lord has done for them. So he's just saying that if we if we know the Lord and we've been forgiven, and God has answered our prayers and done great things in our lives, we should share that with others. We should want to talk about that with other people. Okay, let's move on to verse eight. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. So David says he wants to go to the house of the Lord. Now we know at this time there was a tabernacle. Uh, The temple had not yet been built because Solomon would build that. But there was a a tabernacle that housed the Ark of the Covenant. And David wanted to go uh, to the house of the Lord and worship him. Uh, the place where God's honor was, or the place where his glory dwelled. Um, and we know that was in the tabernacle um, later on in the temple, in the holiest of holies above the ark, uh, where the high priest uh, would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, one of the saddest uh, parts of the Old Testament is when, I think it's in the book of Ezekiel, where it talks about you know, because Israel had sinned and disobeyed God and, and they would go into exile. Uh, but it talks about how the glory of the Lord left the temple. Uh, and then the children of Israel uh, would go into uh, captivity and Babylon would come and destroy uh, the temple. And they would have to rebuild it. When they came back from captivity, they would have to rebuild the temple and people when they rebuilt that second temple uh, some people were sad because the glory of that first 
uh, the glory of the first temple outshone the glory of the second temple. The second temple was not uh, quite as magnificent as the first one, as Solomon's temple. And But David wanted to go where God's glory dwelt, and he wanted to worship the Lord. Uh, and so we as believers, we as Christians, should want to go to the house of the Lord. We should want to go to church to uh, worship God. That should be a desire of, of ours. Now, I don't want to equate the uh, house of God with uh, the actual, I don't want to equate the building uh, with the church because the church is made up of the redeemed people of God, uh, believers in Christ, um, who have put their faith in Christ and they've been baptized and they are members of the church. So the, the church is made up of the people, uh, not necessarily the building. Nevertheless, we should want to go to the house of the Lord and worship him. The book of Hebrews says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, granted, lately that has been uh, put under strain because we're going through a pandemic and many churches have been closed or uh, services have been restricted. And so that's been a little difficult uh, lately. But I think what one thing that has done just make us appreciate uh, how important that is because I know when uh, the church I attend was closed and, and we weren't able to go to church for several weeks I it, I missed it and wanted to go uh, go back I, I, it made me appreciate it more alright um, Ephesians 3.20 um, says unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages world without end amen so where does God receive glory today it's in the church through Christ Jesus or by Christ Jesus uh, so God has ordained it where Christ uh, would receive glory uh, through the church okay let's look at verses 9 through 10 Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men, in whose hands is mischief, and their right hand is full of bribes. The NIV there uh, says, Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. So David doesn't want to be counted with the wicked, but he wants to be counted with the righteous. He's praying, Lord, don't take my soul away with the sinners and with the violent men. Um, and of course, as believers, we can relate to this. We don't want to be counted with the wicked. We want to be counted with believers, with the righteous in Christ Jesus. We want uh, to be in the house of the Lord, not with the wicked. Uh, he talks about um, the, the mischief in whose hands is mischief. That word can be translated uh, sinister scheme or wicked schemes. So in their hands are wicked schemes. And then he talks about how they uh, are full of bribes. Uh, they aren't honest in their dealings with others, but they try to bribe their way into things, into office or into power. They're dishonest in their dealings. Okay. Um, you know, it says in the New Testament, marvel not if the world hates you. So we are distinct and different from the world. Uh, as believers, we're, we're not the same as the world. We're different because we've been redeemed, because we're believers in Christ and, 
and God lives in us. So uh, there will be uh, a desire as believers to be with other believers and not to dwell or be counted with the wicked. Uh, that's just a natural desire of a believer is to be with other believers, not with the wicked. Okay, um, verses 11 through 12. Uh, verse 11, but as for me, I will walk in mine integrity, redeem me, and be merciful unto me. That little phrase there, but as for me, reminds me of that uh, verse in Joshua, where Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's similar here, David saying, but as for me, I will walk in mine integrity. He's saying, I don't want to be like those uh, wicked people I just described, whose hands are full of wicked schemes, and they're full of bribes, and they're bloody men or bloodthirsty men. He's, he doesn't want to be like them, uh, but he wants to serve the Lord. Uh, also, it kind of reminds me of the verse in the previous psalm, in Psalm 25 that we discussed last week, there in verse 21, Psalm 25, 21, he says, let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait on thee. So we see this idea of integrity being a recurring theme in the psalms, where David wants to be a man of integrity uh, it doesn't mean that he's perfect, but it means that he's honest and that he walks in the truth. Um, Charles Spurgeon says on this here, um, Yet he is by no means a boaster or a self-righteous bragger of his own strength, for he cries for redemption and pleads for mercy. So he's talking about that second part of verse 11 there where David says, redeem me and be merciful unto me. So we have to be careful here that we don't become self-righteous and, and we, we know David's talking about the wicked and how bad they are and how he's innocent. And it's easy to fall into the trap of kind of looking down on the wicked and, and talking about how bad they are. And we have to be careful not to become self-righteous. And, and so David prays here, redeem me and be merciful unto me. So he realizes that he has his own sins. He's not completely pure and innocent. He's a sinner just like anyone else. And so he asks God for mercy. And I think that's a good reminder to us that, um, that for all of sin and come short of the glory of God, we shouldn't look down our nose at anybody and think we're better than them. It's only by the grace of God that we're forgiven. And we have to seek God's mercy like anybody else. Uh, it's only by the grace and mercy of God that we're saved and forgiven. All right, so David wraps it up with verse 12. He says, My foot standeth in an even place, and the congregations will I bless the Lord. That word even place uh, can be translated level ground. So he's saying, I stand on level ground. Um, so in a place that's secure, where he won't slip, you know, the wicked... It talks about how they stand on a slippery ground uh, in places that are not safe. Uh, but David wants to stand on secure ground, level ground, where he's not going to slip or fall. And you see the confidence, or you hear the confidence in his words here. Uh, confidence and faith in the Lord and praise to God. So because he has a clean conscience and because he loves the Lord and wants to serve the Lord, comes, uh, with that comes this confidence and, and um, praise to God. Uh, 
I wanted to read one more Charles Spurgeon quote here. Um, he says, The song began in the minor, but it has now reached the major key. So this song began kind of on a negative note, you know, talking about how his enemies were... I mean, it's kind of implied. It doesn't say it outright, but it's kind of implied that his enemies are oppressing him and falsely accusing him. But again, it ends with praise. And we've seen that before in the Psalms where the Psalm starts out, David's in a bad situation. He's discouraged. His enemies surround him. But he ends with praise and and thanksgiving and confidence in the Lord. And so that's the case here too. And he says, in the congregations, I will bless the Lord. So again, he wants to be around other believers and he wants to be with people so he can praise the Lord, uh, not just by himself, but with other believers as well. He says he will bless the Lord. So in conclusion, uh, this psalm is basically about, you know, where do we go to? Where do we turn when we're falsely accused or mistreated? And David shows us the example here that we turn to the Lord and we seek, we seek his help uh, in his deliverance. And another person that was falsely accused was Jesus. And Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. Uh, It says, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile, or deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So Christ set an example that when he was falsely accused and mistreated, you know, he set the the example of how to act. Now this is obviously easier said than done. It's easy to talk about this. It's very hard to put into practice when you're out in the real world and someone falsely accuses you or persecutes you or does you wrong, it's very difficult in that moment to have a forgiving attitude, to bless your enemies, and to respond the way Jesus did. Uh, it's, it's not easy. So I'm not saying it's easy, but uh, that's what we're called to do. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 27 Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. Uh, Jesus says, But I say unto you which hear, Love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. So, you know, in the New Testament, it's a little bit different. Uh, 
we're called to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. You know, in the Old Testament, it was kind of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You read the Psalms, and a lot of times David prays these imprecatory prayers towards his enemies, and he prays for God to strike them down, and he prays for them to be destroyed. And we get to the New Testament, and what does Jesus tell us to do? He tells us to bless our enemies and pray for our enemies and love our enemies. And so uh, that's often difficult, and it's not easy. And we can't do it on our own. We need God's grace and strength to do that. But that's what uh, Christ says we're to do. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed Psalm 26, and I hope it blessed you. Uh, That's all for this week. And so I'm going to close with the way I closed last week, and I'm going to read the uh, priestly breast. I'm sorry, the priestly blessing, uh, or the priestly benediction. Uh, from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace.